Well, brothers, let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear, and we pray that your word may produce an abundance in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I would be complex. I would be cool. They say I played the field before I found someone to commit to. And that would be okay for me to do. Every conquest that I made would make me more of a boss to you. I'd be a fearless leader. I'd be an alpha type. When everyone believes you, what's that like? I'm so sick of running as fast as I can, wondering if I'd get there quicker if I was a man. And I'm so sick of them coming at me again, because if I was a man, then I'd be the man. Yeah, I'd be the man. I'd be the man. Well, apart from fulfilling my teenage daughter's lifelong dream for me to quote a Taylor Swift song (laughs) in men's chapel, I'm quoting the man because it, it tunes in to the real frustration and anger that so many women feel towards the power that men so casually wield in our world. And brothers, if you don't get it, then you need to try. Because the frustration and the pain, well, it's not just there in that song and it's not new. It's there in Genesis chapter 3 where God's judgment on humanity includes those words to the woman, your desire will be for your man and he will rule over you. And this curse continues to affect humanity. And we Christians aren't immune, are we? You know that we've seen it. We've seen it tragically among our own, among those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. But of course, just identifying a problem doesn't automatically give you the solution, does it? And there are solutions to this problem on offer in our world. And some of those solutions are so deeply ingrained that we we don't even think them. We just feel them. I mean, there's the Will Smith solution, isn't there? (laughs) Slap the man who insults your woman. Or if you want the verbal version, go on Twitter and verbally slap the misogynist and every other idiot out there. Or there's a solution, again echoed by Taylor Swift in three short words in another recent song. Damn the patriarchy! Except she doesn't say damn. She uses another stronger four-letter word more emotionally charged. She's talking about the revolution. You've got to overthrow the system and the power structures. You've got to reverse the roles of who does what and enforce the ideology. And yet this revolution, while while it may have won some battles, is not winning the war. The problem of men dominating women is rife today. And, And despite all the rhetoric that you hear, it's not just a conservative problem. I mean, Taylor Swift's song is about the sexually liberated American entertainment industry. Men love the sexual revolution because it liberates them to give us the freedom to do whatever we want. In Australia, there are rising rates of men controlling and abusing women. 
and as Jess Hill writes in her recent book about abuse in Nordic countries, which have amongst the highest rates of economic equality between men and women, they also have amongst the highest levels of domestic abuse in the world. This is a human problem. And yet, brothers, it affects all of us, doesn't it? Because we are all too human. We believers. And yet the Bible speaks of an answer to our human problem. And it, it's an answer that our world is not particularly looking for. In fact, on the surface, when judged by our world's ideology, the answer actually looks like heresy. But it's continued to speak and transform the lives of many millions for thousands of years. And one small but significant part of that answer is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. I'm in chapel over several years. I'm preaching a series in 1 Timothy. And I'm up to this passage, and it so happens to fall in men's chapel, which I think is great, because as men involved in gospel ministry, we really need to hear what God's word has to say to us as men here. So I'm going to read it now, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. You can follow along if you like. Paul says... So I want men to pray in every place, raising pure hands without anger and disputing. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves in honourable clothing with respectability and good judgment, not with elaborate hairstyles and gold or pearls or super expensive clothing, but as is fitting for women who profess devotion to God through good works. A woman should learn with quietness, with all submissiveness, but I do not permit a woman to teach and so assume authority over a man. Rather, she should be in quietness. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, having been deceived, came into transgression, but she will be saved through childbearing if they remain in faith and love and holiness with good judgment. Now, you probably know that this passage has created a gigantic amount of scholarly discussion uh, the last 50, 60 years. And I've thought long and hard about it myself. Uh, we teach about it in, in third year in New Testament 3. I'll be presenting an academic elective in next year's Priscilla and Aquila conference if you'd like to go into details. But in this sermon, I'm not going to look at every detail. Instead, I'm going to briefly summarise what I'm convinced it says and I'm going to focus on what it means for us as men. Let's start with some context. Uh, the problem of men and women is, of course, only part of the bigger problem and the great problem of sin and God's judgment against that sin. And that's why God's answer to our awful human problem is grace. Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus' saving grace to those who do not deserve it, which, which saves us and brings us to hope in eternal life. Paul says in chapter 1, Jesus Christ came into the world to save, save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So ultimately, we need to remember our big horizon is that new creation where everything will be made new. But God's grace doesn't zap us out of creation. And the false teachers in Ephesus, where Paul's writing to Timothy, in this situation, they are denying the goodness of God's creation. They're not interested in living in this world. They're interested in, in words, in speculations, in, in vain discussions. 
But Paul insists that God's grace affirms God's creation, God's good creation, full of joy. Despite the pain, there is joy and there is good order. So at the start of chapter 2, we are all, men and women, to pray so we can live in quietness and order. And that word quiet in 1 Timothy is the opposite of, the opposite of riot. Uh, being quiet and ordered is good. And it's part of God's plan for all people to be saved because we are saved through his word. God's wonderful, powerful word of Jesus' death for all humanity, this word. This preaching, this teaching brings salvation. And it brings it not apart from this creation, but through this creation to eternal life. And Paul, in verse 7, is God's authoritative preacher and teacher, who now turns to address men and women. And so this passage from verse 8, it's about quietness and order for both men and women in gathered worship. God's gospel brings good order, which means that how we bring God's word to one another in our gatherings should reflect that order. So here on the screen is a summary of verses 8 to 12. Uh, Paul has similar but distinct instructions for men and women. Uh, the context of those instructions is in every place, which I think it means is about gathered worship. Uh, for men, big summary here, summarising lots of stuff. For men, the activity is to pray. The physical or social expression is raising hands. The demeanour is pure. The prohibition is against anger and disputing. And the reason is that anger and disputing is the opposite of peace, quietness, reverence and dignity. You see that in verse 2. And it's similar but distinct for women in gathered worship. The key activities, there's two of them, adorning oneself with honour and good works and learning. The physical social expression is avoiding provocative clothing. The demeanour is being quiet, submissive, not being a doormat, it's, it's an expression of order. The prohibition in this context is teaching. And the reason is that teaching assumes authority over a man. I'm, I'm convinced that is the best way to understand the conjunction ude and so. Um, Again, not going into detail. But because this is men's chapel, I want to bring out three big points for us men. Firstly, we'll talk from verse 8. Quietness for men means prayer, not fighting. Secondly, verses 9 to 12, we need to value good works and God's word among our sisters. And thirdly, verses 13 to 15, we must not abandon our responsibility in this area. Okay, I'm going to keep it up on the screen. I'm going to start by talking about verse 8. Verse 8, we are to pray, raising pure hands without anger and disputing. Quietness for men means prayer, not fighting. So why, why raising hands? Often raising hands today amongst us happens in the context of music, which, which is okay. But Paul's not talking about music here. It, 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 music is not the big thing. He's talking about prayer. And there's an external posture he encourages in prayer that points to an internal posture. It's a posture of purity, not anger and arguing. This, this is about pure hands. See, bloodshed, 
fighting, anger, disputing, make, make, makes our hands impure, filthy. And so does the verbal version of, of that anger and, and disputing. And might I add, that includes the kind of online verbal violence that's all, the, all over social media. But Paul says to raise pure hands, to adopt a posture that says, God, here are my hands washed of violence and anger. Hear me. We men, we can be so easily prone to, to fight, can't we? Prone to anger and verbal fighting for the cause. We want to be passionate. We want to be leaders. We want to win. I want that, don't you? But God's grace does something to us. So brothers, as your sins are washed away in the blood of Jesus who died for you, you need to let that washing flow over your hands, your heart, your voice, your, your words, to repent of, of violence. And I wish this would go without saying, but it doesn't go without saying, so I'm going to say it. That includes violence against everybody, especially women, which is never acceptable. And there's a tragic irony in the fact that this passage that specifically tells us not to be angry and dispute is often the passage we get most angry and dispute about. Now, I know we need to be firm on the truth, and that's important. And sometimes you really do need to speak up for the truth. That's important. And I'm fully aware that when you do speak up for the truth, rightly, you can be falsely accused of fighting. Uh, I, I know I've, when I've tried to speak firmly and speak for the truth on this issue, especially online, I know that the polarisation and the confusion and indeed the manipulation of people, people who stoke the flames or perhaps even worse, people who play the victim, means I can be so unfairly accused of disputing when I'm just trying to be firm. But, you know, sometimes it's not unfair. I know my own heart. I know I like to win. I know I like to be a hero. I hate being slandered. And what I really want is justice. So what I need to do is open my pure hands to God and repent because my hands are not pure and yet Jesus' blood makes them pure and pray to him who is powerful and loving and keep coming back to that grace that is in Jesus Purify your hearts and hands. That's why we pray together. That's why we come together with quietness, with gentleness, with humility, with order. And in fact, straight after this sermon, I've asked James to invite us all to raise our hands as we pray. It's an expression of repentance and purity. If you don't want to do that, that's okay. We'll all have our eyes closed anyway, probably, so no one will see. <laughs> but I hope the outward posture will help our inward posture of humility and quietness, just for today. Okay, well, let's move on to verses 9 to 12 and the instructions about women. And again, this isn't the place to fill in all the details, but I do need to briefly summarise what I'm convinced it means and doesn't mean. The situation Paul's addressing here is not every possible situation of Christian men and women communicating. It's about gathered worship and especially the formal big T teaching that happens there in, in public worship. Paul's not addressing some specific 
temporary issue in Ephesus. He's not giving his personal preference. He's speaking, verse 7, with the authority of the apostle and teacher to all the nations. That's what he's speaking as when he says, I want. Learning and teaching here, it's not some sort of first century cultural expression of some other more important principle that we go looking for. No, teaching and learning God's word is the big thing Paul cares about from verse 11 onwards. Quietness and submission for women is not about silence in every aspect. It's about the appropriate expression of order in this particular context of gathered worship. The reason women should learn is not so that they can then go and teach because education is an end in itself. It doesn't have to be justified by some other goal. Learning is good and powerful. Paul isn't referring to some special problem in Ephesus with women false teachers. There's no clear evidence for that in the text. The false teachers Paul identifies are mainly men and what they're doing is they're denying the goodness of God's creation and order. The word teach means teach. Like the English word teach. It's not some special technical activity of passing on the apostolic deposit. There are other words for that that Paul could have used. He doesn't. Teaching is an educational word with a focus on learners and learning. And so it includes explanation and application. But Paul is not talking about every possible form of teaching. We have to keep in mind the context. Paul's talking about the specific formal big T teaching in gathered worship, which I believe translates today primarily into our main Sunday sermons. And finally, the mention of authority, it provides a reason, not a limitation. Paul's not saying it's actually fine for a woman to teach provided she doesn't assume authority. No, this particular kind of big T teaching, gathered worship by its very nature, undermines or assumes authority if it's disordered in that way. Now, there's other places, as I said, to talk about the details, but I want us men to think about how this passage helps us as we relate to our sisters. Because it's really easy for us to focus on what women aren't permitted to do here, but we need to keep seeing what this text affirms about women. Do you see that? Verses 9 to 10 tells us women are not just sex objects. That's what it's saying. It's saying they have good works to do for Christ. And, and those good works, it's not some menial condescending thing. Overseers are to do good works. Elders are to do good works. The rich are to do good works. And women are to do good works in 1 Timothy. Verses 11 to 12 tell us that women aren't stupid. No, women are intelligent human beings alongside men who are respected and who are to learn. And this is consistent with the Bible's teaching on women elsewhere. Paul himself had so many women, indeed co-workers in his ministry, who worked and learned, who knew and shared the gospel, who supported the work and cared for others. And in many ways, this teaching was revolutionary in the Roman world. It made Christianity very attractive. It's out of step with many today. I mean, what's the Taliban desperately seeking to do now? It's desperately seeking to stop women learning. And in fact, it is actually out of step with so much of the Western world. Despite the rhetoric and the ideology, pornography keeps training men to view and value women mainly as sex objects. So men, we need to be different. We need to be profoundly different. 
How do you value good works and God's word among your sisters and in Christ? And how do you actually demonstrate that valuing in your speech and in your actions and in your ministry decisions and in your relationships? Now, of course, that does not mean a sameness between men and women. There is an order expressed here. It's an order of teaching and learning. I want to say, but by God's grace and with sin washed away, this is a good order. And that's why, uh, next slide, we, we must not abandon our responsibility, verse 13 to 15. Now, this point comes from verse 13 to 15, and I know that there's lots of questions again about this, but here's what I believe it means. Verse 13, Paul's talking about a good order in God's creation, and it's an order that informs our order of, of teaching and learning. It's not an order of worth or value or status. It's an order of speaking and giving God's word with initiative from the man and response from the woman. And this order can be, and so often is, good and joyful. And I hope you know that. And I really do hope you've experienced it. Verse 14, though, speaks about the impact of sin. I don't think Paul's saying here that women are more gullible it wouldn't make sense of what he said earlier. He's saying that Adam had a special responsibility when it came to sin. When the man sinned, he wasn't deceived. And that made it worse. Because he knew exactly what he was doing. And he sinned anyway. And that underlines our responsibility, especially those of us who do teach. Verse 15, it's about grace. I won't go through all the options. But ultimately it's about living a godly Christian life, which in context... Uh, which is the context in which God saves us. So, men, if you're ever in charge of a congregation, and many of you will be, you'll have to make a decision about what to do with these words. You might want to avoid it, but you just can't. It's simply not an option to avoid it, because this isn't an individual preference. It's not like choosing what you eat and what you drink. It's just not like that. By its very nature, this is an issue where the decision to do something affects everybody in the congregation. That's just how it works. And I want to ask you and urge you not to just come up with simple cop-out answers. So if you say, oh, this is all too hard, so I'm just not going to think about it. Let's just go with whatever experience I or others have had. Well, that's a cop-out. Why do you think God's given you this word? This is a good word. You need to look at it and not ignore it. Or I guess if you say, if it's really easy, so I'm not going to have women do anything in terms of church or anything within our ministries, well, that's also a cop-out, isn't it? What about the things this passage affirms? How will you value and promote God's work and God's word amongst women? How will you take seriously and respect women alongside men? And yes, I am convinced that this passage it's pretty directly applicable to the regular main Sunday sermon, but it's not the only issue in this passage, and it's definitely not the only issue to do with men and women in the Bible. So you need to think, and you need to be consistent, and you need to follow through. So I want to finish with three reasons why we might not take responsibility in this area. I want to bring it back to God's grace. Firstly, we men can be afraid we can be afraid of how people will react to us. And I admit, that's me. That's where I fall. That's, I'm afraid. I'm so incredibly aware of the power of the world's ideology, which is being increasingly enforced by governments, etc. 
And that ideology looks at my decision to see men and women as different and defines it as dangerous heresy. And that's a bit frightening. So I need to return to God's grace and to remember that his word is good and that Jesus, who made the good confession, is now risen and nothing can take me away from his grip. Secondly, we men can be lazy or undisciplined. You know, if you don't think carefully about your ministry and your teaching and your preparation, if you're always last minute in everything, you won't be putting the time and, and effort into the women, will you? you you'll be thinking, oh, there'll be an afterthought. Deliberately valuing women, seeking to include them. Have you got time for that? I'm just doing, doing, doing the latest thing. God's grace leads us to chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, self-control and discipline in our ministry. And thirdly, we men can be proud. Because I have known women in ministry, dear sisters, women who've really wanted to joyfully follow God's good order here and are still convinced that this is good, but they've been hurt badly, hurt by evangelical Christian men in leadership positions, men who've made mistakes, not malicious mistakes, but hurtful mistakes, neglectful mistakes. And by itself, that would be okay. We all make mistakes. I've made mistakes. But the tragic thing is that in some of those situations, these men didn't admit their mistakes and they dug in in their pride and they looked for excuses. And that was devastating. And that's why we men in ministry need grace. Not, not the cheap grace that just excuses us, the grace that is in Jesus Christ, grace that humbles us, grace that washes us clean, that transforms us that leads us to repentance day by day, which is not going to give us a perfect life this side of eternity. And yet it's real and it's very good. And it's grace that brings quietness and that causes us to pray and to trust. And that brings us to see and respect and value those women amongst us. And brothers, there are so many women I know and deeply, deeply respect whose work and learning of God's word has given them ministries that have flourished and grown through and alongside ministries of men, working alongside them, a joyful order as we await his return. Shall we pray? Father, by your grace, wash us, Help us to repent, to trust, and to live rightly in the good world you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen.